uncertain times that we are in, and they are strange. Well, 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 welcome back to the Strange Days podcast with your host, Fernan Amandi, a well-rested Fernan Amandi, that is. Hopefully you all, now that we're more than two weeks into the Biden presidency, are catching up on some long overdue sleep. I know I'm feeling recharged and refreshed. But folks, there is, I guess, no rest for the weary in spite of the caught-up sleep because there continue to be issues in America and around our planet that we cannot take our eye off. And that's why on this week's edition of the podcast, I am thrilled to have joining us two chroniclers of two different types of challenges for the country and for the world. The first, of course, global climate change. And we're going to talk to the author of the book, How to Prepare for Climate Change. It is CBS Sunday Morning Correspondent and the host of the PBS series, Nova, David Pogue, telling us about the challenges in front of us when it comes to climate change, where to live, what to grow, where to invest, and how to build, because whether you like it or not, it's coming and it's changing. And on the other side of this edition of Strange Days, we bring back Franklin Schaefer to talk about what he regards as one of the great threats. It is the white Christian radicalized evangelical movement that we saw not really break from Donald Trump and what they do now that they have found common cause with QAnon and other members of the insurrectionists who say an American theocracy is what awaits us. Franklin Schaefer and David Pogue on the Strange Days podcast with your host, Fernando Mondi, that's me, starts right now. We are back on the Strange Days podcast, and while we may have avoided a political disaster here in the United States, folks, there is another looming disaster that doesn't just impact our portion of the planet, it impacts all of the planet. And for me, our next guest and the subject of this next book is not just something to be prepared for and concerned about from where this podcast comes from, which those of you longtime listeners know, we are based out of South Florida, the city of Miami. It's a horror story. It's an existential one at that. And it's the subject of how to prepare for climate change and how to survive the coming chaos in a practical sense. And that's why I am so pleased to have with us David Pogue, who you, of course, know 
know from his work as the Emmy Award-winning technology and science correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning. He's also the best-selling author of the New York Times Pogue's Basics series and the subject of this book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, A Practical Guide to Surviving the Chaos. David Pogue, welcome to Strange Days. Thank you so much. That is an excellent intro. Well, I appreciate it, and I appreciate your book, and I mean it, uh, not hyperbolistic. I, you know, I read your book with a bottle of uh, Johnny Walker next to me because I had to stop every now and again, especially living in Miami. And really, David, before we get into the particulars, I, I got to take my hat off to you because what I loved about it was you didn't really take the is it or isn't it happening. You just took the approach, look, it's coming whether you like it or not. Here's how to get ready. What motivated you to write it in this stark, clear, and concise language, David? It's funny you should bring that up because people always ask me, what about deniers? What do we say to climate deniers? And to me, I'm not sure what that even means. Like, is a denier somebody who says that the climate is not changing? Like that the record number of hurricanes, the record number of droughts, the record number of wildfires are just are not happening. I, I don't think that exists anymore. I think that the number of people in that category are vanishingly small. I think what most people think of a denier is someone who says, well, yeah, the weather's changing, but it's a natural cycle. It's not man-made. We don't need to stop burning fossil fuels. Um, I mean, they're wrong. <laughs> and and those numbers of people are dropping too. The latest survey, which which was April 2020, said that 37% of Americans still fall into that category. But, uh, but for the purposes of this book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you believe that it's a man-made thing or whether it's a natural cycle. You, you can look out the window and see that the climate is changing, and therefore you got to prepare. So for those of you listening right now, I mean, I can't stress this enough. I never, and you all know this, you longtime listeners of the podcast, I never bring on anybody whose book I don't already recommend and suggest. Like if they're on the show, it's because you got to get the book. I can't stress enough. This book is a must book to have, but I got to tell you, and David, for your own uh, sense as well, this is a book that is going to provoke not necessarily an existential crisis, but it's going to provoke hard decisions. And for me and my wife, after having read David's book, we actually had to set up a dinner and say, all right, it's time to have the talk because we cannot avoid it anymore. And David, I want to just throw out a phrase that you talk about and let you tell the listeners why this phrase is so important and why, for me, it, it sparked from your book, The Conversation with My Wife. And the phrase is the 42nd Parallel. Yeah. So the question is, um, there's this new term called climate refugees, and it means just what it sounds like. It's people who have to move because of the effects of climate change. So in Miami, Fernand, I mean, this is not going to be news to you, but Miami is probably the most at-risk city in the United States. It's, it's low-lying, it's subject to fierce hurricanes and the worst of the sea level rise. Um, and you can't protect Miami with a seawall because the water actually comes up from through the ground. It's like porous rock. So uh, there's no way really to save Miami um, in terms of the long term, 2050, 2080, that kind of thing. So all these climate refugees are trying to figure out, well, 
On the East Coast, you've got these super storms. On the West Coast, you've got the wildfires. On the South Coast, you've got the hurricanes. You know, the entire Western half of the United States is in a perpetual drought. Where can we go where there's enough fresh water forever and where we don't endure those extreme weather? And the answer is, as you said, above the 42nd parallel, which is basically this dotted line through the top third of the United States. And what a lot of experts are telling me is that the Great Lakes area, like the, the old Rust Belt cities are the new climate haven cities, Cleveland, Buffalo, uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, these are all going to be uh, fantastic places to live in the coming century. Not, not everybody has the means to move or the ability to move or wants to move, but increasingly climate change is a factor in, in people deciding where they're going to go. Um, you know, when they graduate or get married or get divorced or comparing jobs. And the answer is above the 42nd parallel. Think North and Central United States. So, David, you said something that I love because, again, you said it unblinkingly. And at the same time, it triggers this notion of this existential game of chicken that everybody's going to be playing with the facts on the ground as they happen. And it's the idea of in this century. That was the phrase that you just used. So thinking about this in this century dynamic, David, and when people need to actually start making those decisions, you argue in the book, hey, maybe do them now, but really, realistically, practically, what is the timetable where these decisions should already be made by? Yeah, brilliant question. The answer is is now. In other words, well, let me put it this way. I, I interviewed the head of uh, uh, one of the fire chiefs at Cal Fire. That's the California Wildfire Department. And I asked him, so you guys have just had the worst California fire season in recorded history. And it followed last year's, which was then the worst one, which followed the previous year's, which was then the worst one. Internally at Cal Fire, how do you guys think about this as this season draws to an end? Do you, do you say, whew, that's good. That's over. Uh, hope we have a better year next year. And he said, no, we don't see this as the end. We think of this as the beginning. This is the way it is from now on. And that's true with all of these things, the droughts, the hurricanes, the, the ticks infestation, the mosquito infestation. All of these changes are here and with us now. So whether you're a business or a family, if you want to guess what the future is going to be like where you live now in the next 10 years, well, you, you start with today and you can safely assume it's not going to get better. So it's either going to be like this or it's going to keep getting worse. And unfortunately, that's true even if we stopped burning fossil fuels tomorrow, which we won't, but even if we did, the problem is that 93% of the trapped heat from the greenhouse effect has gone into the oceans and the oceans take generations to cool down. So this kind of crazy weather and shifting agricultural patterns and you know the suffering of, of low-lying countries and poorer countries around the world is just getting started. You know, David, there's always, of course, even with the scenario you described that I certainly don't doubt and the scientific consensus is aligned around, there's always the idea that these aren't going to happen necessarily overnight or literally overnight, but there are trigger events 
canary and coal mine style events that could very well in and of themselves cause reactions extreme. And I'm just thinking of one in particular, you know, no one argues that Miami is going to be underwater next year or maybe even in five years or 10 years. But I feel, and I think you talk about this in your book, the moment that they stop issuing 30 year mortgages on real estate property in Miami, that's going to cause a freak out. So what are those type of trigger events that you think we need to be paying very close attention to? Yeah, you, you got it. The, um, the, 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 the corporate and business worlds, you know, insurance and banks and mortgages and the reinsurance companies are the canary in the coal mine. I mean, they're, they're a canary the size of, you know, North America, their big corporate interests, but they are noticing what's happening. And the realtors in Miami will tell you already that a home on the water in Miami in, in one study was worth 14% less than the identical home up the hill and inland. In other words, climate change is already affecting real estate values. Um, you know, as a Florida resident that ever since Hurricane Andrew in 1992, there is no more flood insurance in, in Florida from private insurers. You can, you can get it from the government, um, but the, the insurance industry pulled out of flood insurance nationwide after that event. And the same exact thing is happening with fire insurance in California and, and Oregon and Portland now, um, it's, it's, they're dropping hundreds of thousands of homeowners insurance policies. Like, like you try to renew and they say, the insurance company says, no, sorry, we don't want you as a customer. Um, and that's because wildfire is a bad bet for insurance companies. They're not going to insure a home in California anymore. Um, because they're not idiots and they want to stay in business. So um, that's a huge issue. What's going to happen with insurance? They, they only have three levers they can pull. They can drop you, they can raise their rates, or they can pull out of the state. And they're doing all three of those things. One of these insurance experts I spoke to said, you know, the future of insurance is likely to become just a luxury for rich people because no one else is going to be able to afford it. And the, the insurance companies won't offer it at reasonable rates. David, when you think also about just changes that one should make to their own life and lifestyle, I mean, even I'm going to, I'm going to lay out a hypothetical scenario, which you and I acknowledge will never happen, unfortunately. But even if the world tomorrow, Ayn Ryan style, was able to kind of work in conjunction with one another and do everything that needed to be done going forward to reverse the effects as far as climate change, we're not going to be able to escape some of the after effects. With that not happening, when do you think and how do you think people should start to most importantly and prioritize their change of behavior going forward? Uh, well, there's this fantastic quote. It actually appears in the beginning of this book. Um, it was by Barack Obama's, one of his science advisors, John Holdren. And he, he told the New York Times in 2007, when it comes to climate change, we have three responses. There's mitigation, which means trying to stop it. There's adaptation, which means trying to cope with it. And there's suffering. And how much we do of the first two determines how much we're going to do of the third one. So to my amazement, literally, Everything I've ever seen or heard about climate change is about the first one. It's about how to stop it. Fly less, eat less red meat, um, you know, carpool, um, turn down the thermostat, all that kind of, it's change your light bulbs. And that's all super important. And we need to keep doing that. 
But what I think almost nobody pays attention to is the second part of his formula, the adaptation. It is, I mean, we're not going to reverse climate change to 1990 levels in our lifetimes or our kids' lifetimes. It's done. I mean, we can still head off the worst of the, of the nightmare scenarios by mitigating now, but we, we have to understand that it's, it's, this, this last 10 years has not been a freak. You know, last year was the hottest year ever recorded. Um, last year was the hottest temperature one day ever recorded on Earth, 130 degrees in Death Valley. Last year, we had so many hurricanes that we went through the alphabet of men's and women's names and had to start using Greek letters, alpha, beta. So the answer is, the, your question is now, we need to start preparing now, because look, it's a disaster and you know it's coming. It's not like some disasters that take you by surprise. It's not a cancer diagnosis. You know it's coming. 25 million Americans a year are hit with extreme weather disasters and suffer because of it. And so if you could take a few steps to prepare yourself now, it, it really has two effects. First of all, it prepares you when the disaster comes, both keeping your house and your family intact and saving your money, saving money when the disaster comes. But secondly, you feel better, right? Like knowing you're prepared, knowing you've taken action against the depressing reality makes you sleep better at night. It's a known psychological fact that seizing control over your situation gives you a better sense of peace. David, for those of us listening that that have children or care about children, we all cherish our children's future and their children's future. And that's why it was it was a very tough but poignant read, your chapter where you talk about protecting your children. Talk to us a little bit about what steps those take that you describe in the book and also what are the best things to do to try and give them as they grow up the sense of quality of life that we've experienced over the last uh, three centuries here in the United States and, and what can be done specifically to protect that going forward with the climate change that's coming? Uh, I will answer that. But first, I would like to say to your listeners <laughs> that this book is 650 pages long and oh. Fernand has read it. <laughs> I can tell that he read it. That is, that is, uh, I, I'm very appreciative of that. Good, sir. <laughs> um, so children, yeah, so there's there's really a couple questions about children. As a parent of three myself, my gut instinct is to protect them, to protect them from bad news, to keep from upsetting them. Um, I'm not an expert on any of the topics in this book, by the way. I'm not an, an insurance expert, a psychological expert, uh, an investment expert. I, w I wasn't even a climate change expert when I got into it. Um, it was done entirely by interviewing people who are experts uh, around the world. And I spoke to five child psychologists and climate therapists. It's a, it's a whole new field, this ecotherapy, um, sprouted up in the last few years. And they all said the same thing, that if you aren't straight with your kids about the danger and the, the severity of what's coming, they will sense that you're lying to them or, or covering up. They'll pick it up from YouTube. They'll pick it up from school, from friends. They'll hear it and they'll wonder why you're not talking about it. They'll think you're trying to hide something and that makes it even more terrifying for them. So the key is you have to acknowledge the, the mess we're in with the climate. Um, now you can do it with as much reassurance 
is as is justified, you can say, but the world's best experts and scientists are working on it. We just elected a president whose number one priority is fixing it. And you can say, and you know, you, you and I, your parents will always be with you. We'll help you through it. We're going to keep you safe, but you should not try to minimize the, the climate change problem. You know, another another part of the book that uh, struck me like a thunderbolt, maybe it's because I'm in Miami and, you know, I can't quite imagine life without it. You know, one of them is mosquito repellent. We'll get into that a little bit later. But it's another issue that you talk about, which really has global consequences. And it's what you term the AC problem. I just cannot imagine a life without air conditioning in Miami and certainly not one on the planet where global temperatures will rise expeditiously over the next years and decades to come. But tell us about what problem air conditioning represents for the world. I mean, air conditioning is obviously how we're going to survive the heat and we need it, those of us who have it. Um, The problem is that AC makes the problem worse in a bunch of ways. It is a huge power hog. And I mean, it's it's probably a third to a half of the average family's electrical budget, you know, depending on where you live, um, is, is air conditioning. Second, the air conditioners themselves contain um, a greenhouse gas that's far worse than carbon dioxide, like hundreds of times worse. And if the air conditioners aren't properly uh, sucked out at the end of their lives um, and preserved, they just make the problem worse. They also make the problem worse with this thing called the heat island effect, the urban heat island effect. What an air conditioner does is it sucks heat out of your home and pumps it outdoors, right? So multiply that times everybody who lives in a city, millions of people, and you're literally pumping heat into the outdoors air and you make the city hotter. You make the city hotter also by being a city because the city is paved. There's very little, you know, plant material, lawns and forests to absorb the heat and absorb the sun. So anyway, you can you can measure from space the temperature of a city, especially at night. Um, it'll be 20 degrees hotter than the countryside outside it just from the effect of the AC and all the paving. So yeah, so air conditioning is a, is, is a problem. One of my experts said it may be time to think about what they used to do in the South before there was air conditioning. They use clever architecture to keep their homes cool. You know, you see those pictures of the Southern, the old plantation homes, they had um, wraparound porches so they could sit outside on the porch during the day and a cool breeze would breathe along. They would design these homes with a big open central like hallway and the breeze would blow through from front to back. I mean, in Miami, when it's not so hot, people might say, you know, open all your windows so you get a cross breeze. Well, that's the effect that they used to build in to every house. And there might be something to say for that idea of of going back to some of those architectural ideas to cut down on the air conditioning and increase the cross flow. flow. 
you know, you, you talk about the AC problem and the book, there's another uh, problem that you talk about and, and you don't have to convince me that it's the deadliest animal of them all, you know, being again in South Florida, but it's, it's mosquitoes and the, the truly, I mean, we, we laugh about it because it's funny, but it's also horrifying in the way you lay it out. It's crystal clear. We're going to be facing the types of infestation that we probably haven't seen on the planet in centuries. Talk to us a little bit about what that means and how that might displace entire populations and what impact it would have on flora, fauna, and animal life. Yeah, you're right. The deadliest animal on earth is the mosquito, not the snake, not the shark. Um, It's the mosquito. It kills millions of people a year with the diseases that it carries. Malaria, fortunately not here in the United States, but widely lethal overseas. Um, Dengue fever, uh, Zika, um, West Nile virus. It is really nasty. And it used to be that the mosquito population would dip during the winter because the cold would kill off a, a big round of the eggs and they wouldn't hatch. Now, the problem is the winters are much milder and they're much shorter. So the winter starts later and the spring comes earlier. So mosquitoes are able to keep right on breeding in more and more northern latitudes. Mosquitoes aren't just a tropics problem anymore. So they're being found higher and higher uh, in our in our latitudes. Um, and some of these, oh man, there's this one called Aedes aegypti that is just the nastiest bug. It'll it'll bite you five times in an hour. <laughs> you know, it's not just like once and done, and it's really hard to kill. And we have very limited ways of controlling this problem. We can spray, um, which is really bad for the other bugs in the environment, the the good bugs, um, butterflies and stuff. Um, we can try genetic engineering, which, okay, maybe, but it's never really been tried on a big scale and people are worried about the secondary effects. Um, there's a, a really cool experiment that I described in the book run by Google's sister company, Verily. And what they did is they performed an experiment in Fresno each of the last three summers where, like, I don't know if, if you know this, but male mosquitoes do not bite. They don't even have the mouth for it. They can't do it. All the mosquito bites come from females. So Verily, this company, took 20 million male mosquitoes. They sterilized them, no genetic modification, and they drove around with vans in in Fresno, <laughs> California, releasing 20 million mosquitoes. And uh, in, and the, what happened was the males went ahead and had sex with the females. Neither one knew that anything was wrong. Uh, the mosquitoes had babies as usual, lay the eggs, but the eggs never hatched. And in a single summer, they cut down the mosquito population of Fresno by 95%. Oh, wow. People were like, what happened to the mosquitoes? They used to be so bad. It was in particular this... 80s Egypti uh, mosquito that, that they they got. So sorry, that's getting way off top topic, but I just love that story because it's it's using like pure smarts to solve the problem instead of really mucking with nature in a in a dangerous way. But yeah, so mosquitoes and and by the way, ticks, ticks which carry Lyme disease and about 16 other really gruesome diseases have the same syndrome. We're now finding ticks as far north as Canada. They used to be kind of like a you know, a New England problem. Um, and again, there's more ticks in more places because the winters aren't killing them off. So 
by the way, I'll tell you what the book says about this. Um, first of all, know when they come out. Mosquitoes come out uh, at, at morning and dusk. So if you want to take a hike, take it in the middle of the day, you'll be fine. And wear DEET. It's bug repellent with this D-E-E-T stuff. It's the most studied chemical on earth. It's to totally safe. It doesn't kill anything. It's just a repellent, but it repels both mosquitoes and ticks. Every expert says it is amazing, amazing stuff. Um, I also learned, by the way, that ticks require humidity. If it is any drier than 82% humidity, they dry up and die. So one great thing you can do is if you don't want your children to get bitten by ticks, you you ensure that there's like nine feet of lawn between any forest and your kids or your house. They can't cross that. That's like Death Valley to them. It's, it's too dry. Um, and also when you come back from a hike, if you do live in a tick area, take off your clothes, throw them in the dryer for 10 minutes. The heat of the dryer kills anything that's on the clothes. And while you're standing there naked, you can just sort of inspect yourself to see if you've got a tick on you. You can't get Lyme disease unless the tick has been attached to you for 48 hours. No one knows that either. So it has to be on you a long time. So if you just check yourself over after a walk, you should be fine. Well, you know, that's that, well, again, what's so great about the book, you, you lay out all of these stories and these elements and these facts that, you know, a lot of people just not thinking about. But again, with the coming onset of this thing, it's going to be more and more online. David, I want to bring this in in terms of you being a science and technology writer. You lend such a unique perspective to this. But there's also uh, an element around governance and, and, and politics here that I think cannot be avoided. And, you know, you talk about Miami famously. But, you know, you other cities you mention in the book in the United States, places like Phoenix, places where the temperature is going to start to become literally uninhabitable. Do you think governments and leaders need to start having the talks now about winding down the very viability of these cities and not allow it to get to kind of a, a crisis situation, knowing that the future just may not be there for these long established uh, outposts across the fruited plain? Yeah. Um, and I've, I've, uh, I've listened to some of your shows, so I don't think you're going to disagree with me politically. <laughs> um, I, I think that, uh, as we all know, the last four years of our federal government has completely ignored the climate change problem and all of its effects wiped the word climate change from government websites. I mean, we've lost four years. Um, and it's, it's really tragic. Um, because, you know, the, the UN has said we only have 12 years to really take immediate dramatic action. So we just lost four of them. But um, in terms of the government sort of buying out cities and, and the answer is yes. And FEMA, the Emergency Management Administration, has already begun buying out people who live in flood zones. They, they buy your house, they pay you to move, and then they knock your house down. They've done this with 50,000 homes so far. And th they do that because it's cheaper to buy you out than to keep <laughs> reimbursing you for the flood damage over and over and over again. Because um, the, the federal government's flood insurance program, believe it or not, is not like car insurance where your rates go up every time you have an accident. Your rates stay the same every time, no matter how many times you file flood claims. With this insurance it's it's not well designed <laughs> so it's costing in fact in fact that flood insurance program is 
billions of dollars in debt right now because of all these hurricanes that they they never expected. And so it's a it's a serious problem um, in terms of the heat problem like Phoenix. I haven't heard of the government um, buying out people or, or knocking down cities there. What you are seeing, though, is a lot of people fleeing these places voluntarily. Uh, I, I heard that Flagstaff, Arizona, which is at an altitude of 7000 feet and therefore it's it's nice and cool, is getting so many refugees from Phoenix which is brutally, insufferably hot, that the people of Flagstaff joke about putting up a wall. <laughs> and, and having Phoenix pay for it, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to get a Phoenix to pay for it. Just a couple quick ones, because you've been so generous with your time. Uh, number one, what is the most important skill set that we as humans on the planet facing this climate change catastrophe that's coming that we need to have if we don't have already what skill set do we need to learn do we need to perfect for our own survival in your judgment i think that if your listeners take one saturday without spending any money they can make themselves so much better prepared for the bad stuff number one Review your insurance policy. You don't know what's in your insurance policy. Nobody knows. They, they bought the cheapest one they could get. It was a long time ago. Things have changed. Okay, your insurance, 50% of Americans live on the coasts. 18% of those in flood zones have flood insurance. 18%, everybody else is a sitting duck. Review your insurance with an understanding that the world has changed. Look at fire and flood, that's number one. Number two, Download, install this free Red Cross app called Emergency. You can put it on your phone. You put in your address, your parents' address, your kids' address, your work address, and then you forget that you have the app. It sits there in some folder on your phone. But if any weather disaster or even like nuclear disaster, industrial disaster ever happens, this thing will start beeping at you to get your attention early. So you have the chance to pack up and get out of your house or do what needs to doing. And the third thing is do what you and your wife did. Sit down with your family and make a plan. One common denominator of all these disasters is that the cell towers go down because in, in a hurricane or a wildfire, the power goes out. So the cell towers go down. You can't communicate with your family. So what you do is you agree this Saturday on places where you'll meet if it ever happens that you can't find each other and can't communicate. Pick a place like the old craggy tree at the corner or pick a, pick a place in town, like we'll meet at the library. Um, but just know in advance, have a plan. That's the other thing. Just think about the possibilities. Yeah, David, I want to end with um, an optimistic question because your book ends on an optimistic note of, of hope and where to find it. I think back to President Kennedy's speech where he challenged the nation to go to the moon at Rice University. He says, why the moon? He says, because there are new answers uh, that we'll find there, new solutions to the problems of man that we may not even be able to contemplate now. And again, as a science and technology writer, I, I ask you the question, is there a hack, if you will, that may be on the brink of some sort of discovery that while maybe not completely offset the problem, could very well be a frontier that if conquered could lessen the potential catastrophe as we see it? 
Yeah. Um, and there are a bunch of more or less nutty ideas. For example, spraying reflective dust into the atmosphere to make the sun's light reflect out into the atmosphere before it hits the earth. Um, somebody talked about driving ships around the earth, spraying a mist to create an artificial fog to achieve the same thing. All of these things are mm, <laughs> questionably affordable and could have <laughs> unintended disaster. For example, if you are blocking the sunlight, how does that affect our agriculture? Um, the most promising one I would say is these climate removal systems. These are these huge industrial looking fans that suck carbon dioxide back out of the air. And you can either store it underground or you can convert it into things like fuel or even carbonated gas for drinks for, you know, Coca-Cola and stuff like that. And you'll never guess who's a huge fan of these carbon removal systems, who's funding a lot of these experiments, the petroleum companies, the gas companies, because they're like, well, hey, if we can suck the carbon dioxide back out of the air, then we can keep on burning gas for the rest of our lives. Um, so the those things work the carbon remo removal systems really work and there's 11 pilot programs running right now the problem is it's too expensive per ton of carbon dioxide at the moment it's coming down um, most people expect that we'll probably get there but you would need a lot of these machines and you would need to hurry up with it so it, it's it's a part of the solution it's not the silver bullet Folks, I read hundreds of books every year. It's part of what I do. And often the good ones go back onto the library, which I'll peruse and bring down on occasion, how to prepare for climate change. That's one that's staying on the bedside for a long, long time. It's as must read as must read gets. Mm -hmm. And David Pogue, thank you so much for not only writing this, but also taking the time to do what you're doing here and in other forms, which is to prepare us for what we cannot, unfortunately, get away from. David Pogue, How to Prepare for Climate Change. Thank you so much for joining us on Strange Days. Thank I'm you, sure. man. I really appreciate it. We're back on the Strange Days podcast, and it's always a pleasure to bring back guests from the past, especially those guests who predicted events that would transpire, and then to see them happen before our eyes, to give them an opportunity not to take a victory lap, but to explain to us why their prediction came to pass and what will happen if we don't heed their future counsel. I can think of no one more appropriate than Frank Schaefer to bring back to the Strange Days podcast. Frank, of course, you know him from his work on MSNBC, where he's been a frequent guest on The Rachel Maddow Show, on, of course, on NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, all up and down the cable television dial as one of the experts in America and perhaps the world on the white Christian evangelical movement. Frank when he was last with us, told us that this was a group that not only was operating in an unchristian manner, but was very much at the fulcrum of what the domestic terrorist movement was about in the United States. And we certainly saw in the events of this past January 6th suggest that what Frank was warning, uh, sadly and tragically, has come to pass. 
So we welcome back to the Strange Days podcast, the author of the book, Letter to Lucy, a manifesto of creative redemption in the age of Trump, fascism and lies, and also the new book, Why I Am an Atheist Who Believes in God, How to Give Love, Create Beauty and Find Peace. Frank Schaefer, welcome back to Strange Days. Hi, it's really lovely to be talking with you again. Well, Frank, the doomsday scenario, of course, would be if you and I were having this conversation uh, with a reelected President Trump or a President Trump who had managed to hold on to power by force, which was something we actually saw him attempt to do and which you feared and suspected he would do and did do. But Frank, at the heart of that was, again, as you warned, as you predicted and as you were proven correct, his reelection efforts were aided almost completely again in overwhelming numbers by the white evangelical Christian community and electorate in the United States. And I'm just wondering, Frank, from your perspective, what does that community do now under President Biden? Well, that community now is, of course, torn between reality, the fact of the matter being that President Biden was elected fairly and squarely, along with Kamala Harris, and the fantasy, which they have accepted wholesale from Donald Trump, that he was cheated and the election was stolen. When the, current, when the invasion of our capital occurred and I was looking to see how evangelical leaders would react, unfortunately, I didn't think that they would fess up and say, maybe we made a mistake, uh, we have lost, it's time to rethink our, our support for Trump and the fact that we made his election possible in 2016 and that we are his biggest supporters. Instead, what happened was that Franklin Graham, who I know personally back in the day when I was the nepotistic sidekick of my evangelist father, Francis Schaefer, I knew Franklin as a kid and then kept up with him through his teens. And of course, I knew his father, the Reverend Billy Graham, the evangelist, grew up with him visiting our home and so forth. Instead of Franklin backing down and taking an opportunity to say, we've been wrong and set the record straight, he came out, he lashed out against the 10 Republican folks who voted in Congress for impeachment, targeted them as Judas for turning against Trump at a time when he said, what we need to do is remind people of the great job, the tremendous things. In fact, his words exactly, I quote, the great things Trump did for our country. And so in a way, he painted a target on their back. And it was no coincidence that a few days later, you were reading stories everywhere about how these folks in Congress, in the House, our representatives, American elected officials, were in fear for their lives and having to have extra security. One actually moved his family out of their home and sent her off with his kids to live somewhere else. Uh, that wasn't a coincidence because Franklin Graham, Ralph Reed, these other evangelical leaders, instead of backing off the violence, they, is, they, they stuck with what Trump had said in the big lie, capital B, capital L, that he had actually won. Instead of questioning that, they stuck with him. And what they did was give the moral imprimatur of pastors to a group that has violent uh, persons within it who belong to militias and other things, highly violent, deranged people who have gone for the Trump lie, hook, line, and sinker. And I think the final thing I would say there is the dirty little secret is none of the leaders believe Trump ever. 
They knew he was a liar. Franklin Graham is not a fool. He runs a, a multi-million dollar global organization and nor is Ralph Reed. It's a cynicism of using him to continue to raise money, to keep their followers in line and to achieve political ends that uh, they want to see happen while pretending that they don't know who he is. And now the final lie being still holding out that he won the election. And so the fact is that now we know two things. One, all those Jesus flags and hangman's nooses and the fundraising that went into putting together these groups had a lot to do with evangelical support. There were busloads of pastors and other people at the rally. Some of them stormed the Capitol, some did not, but without their presence and organizing power, and again, giving their blessing to this crowd of people who then turned into a mob, or part of them did, and stormed the Capitol, none of this would have happened. So we know that the evangelical movement has spawned violence, and we know that their leaders now are unrepentant and sticking with the program. Now, Jeffress, who's a pastor in Dallas, said the violence was too much, but he never backed up and said, in addition to which, it is time for us to tell the truth. Not one evangelical leader that backed Trump, not one, has stood up and said that he lost the election. A couple of them have decried the violence, not Franklin Graham, who went on to say that all he, that bothered him was these, these 10 congressmen, congresspersons actually, women and men, uh, and, and paint a target on their back. So that's where we are. And um, it, the situation is no better. In fact, it's worse. When you see our, our capital on inauguration day swarmed with 20,000 National Guard, you can thank the evangelical white community in America for putting them there and for creating a, an atmosphere of chaos by electing this man, by enabling him, and now by covering for him after he incited a riot. That's where we are today with the evangelical movement here in the States. The movement I came from, the movement I left some 35 years ago, having been the sidekick and nepotistic inheritor of my dad's ministry within that movie, movement, and as someone who was there at the very beginning of the formation of the religious right. The arc now is that it is a violent fringe movement with, with people attached to it or are ready to kill and kidnap and do terrible things. None of this would be happening without broad-based evangelical activism. Even if the individuals, thousands, millions of evangelical, the 60 million evangelicals, 90% of whom would not be violent, a tiny offshoot of that group and the fundraising they do is violent, in addition to which they give cover and you can't emphasize this too much, moral cover to militias and these other groups that may not include one evangelical churchgoer, but would not be there without the general cover being provided by these thousands of pastors and these evangelical groups. Fr Franklin, you know, you certainly are not alone. There are millions that share your sentiment that indeed the white evangelical Christian community and its leadership, for the most part, with some exceptions, is a violent group now that is willing to engage in violent insurrection to establish a crypto-fascist theocracy here in the United States. And again, we have now forevermore the stain in our history of the events of January 6th with the participation, as you alluded to, of several pastors and leaders in, in the movement. Having said that, Franklin, Joe Biden is the president of the United States. He has committed to trying to unite the country and lower the temperature and, and in essence, try and work with all sides, something that I think you and others have said is a mistake. If you had the opportunity to counsel President Biden, 
What should he do in the immediate two years where he still has the barest of majorities in the Senate and in the House uh, while president to make changes to, to lessen this threat? Well, you know, I would be very upfront and I would say a couple of things. I would say one of the things you can do to lower the temperature is to tell the truth about why the temperature was elevated. You know, after the defeat of the Nazis in Germany in 1945, the first thing the U.S. did with the British and the French and the Allies was to insist on a denazification program in Germany that took uh, 5, 10, 15 years to be completed. This wasn't a small thing. This was in the schools and the churches, the churches that had gone along with the National Socialist Nazi movement and so forth. They confronted it. We can't go through an election in which a president has told a barefaced anti-democracy lie that we did not have a fair election, that there should not have been a peaceful transfer of power, in fact, tried to stir up an insurrection to overthrow it without naming some names. So for instance, without writing off every evangelical voter as a violent instigator, because they are not, it needs to be said that without that broad-based cover that the evangelical movement has given the militias and these other people by simply not calling them out, you have to understand, this isn't even a question of what people have said, it's also what they have not said. If you're in a position of moral leadership in any community and some great evil is being done with your name attached, for instance, those folks who were in the chamber itself of the house praying from the dais in the name of Jesus, retaking the government for the people in their words, in the name of Jesus, when that's going on and you're Franklin Graham and you don't say anything except criticize the congressmen and the congresswomen who stand up bravely and vote to impeach on principle, I'm talking about the Republicans now, then your very silence on what is being done in the name of your religion makes you culpable. It's no different than the Saudi Arabian royal family that nurtured in its bosom the viper of Wahhabist Islam that lashed out at the United States with the bin Laden organized attacks on 9-11. And the Saudis have never been called to account because of their oil money, because they buy our weapons, and because of support for Israel and a tacit kind of quid pro quo arrangement. In the same way that because we never called the Saudis out, we left ourselves open for now 20 years almost of violence from, first of all, Al-Qaeda, and then ISIS and on and on it goes. Similarly, you cannot gloss this over. So I would just say, look, you can't on one hand say we may have a domestic terror situation and on the other hand, not talk about its religious origin honestly. But then here's something counterintuitive that maybe you're not expecting me to say. And that is, I would also go to the evangelical leadership and say, listen, I understand where your anger comes from. The East Coast and West Coast elites have been snobs. They have treated you like second-class citizens. I hear you. And I understand where some of this anger came from. I understand that from your point of view, abortion is murder and it has to be discussed and openly looked at as an issue that can't just be, oh, well, we've done that. I understand that you are shell-shocked by all the culture war changes that have taken place in terms of everything that's gone on with transgender rights and the rest of it. Let's talk about this. We understand that you're, that you're angry and that you have your reasons. You can be heard here. I am not going to brush that off and pretend that these differences don't exist. However, let's first agree to draw a line on violence. Let's agree that you come out now and support not my policy, not me, not the Democratic process uh, party, but the Democratic process, the election. You, hey, Franklin, Ralph, you guys, 
I'll meet with you in the Oval Office, but you've got to stand up saying enough is enough. This was a fair election and you have to go after Fox News and right wing radio and Rush Limbaugh and these other liars and say, we as evangelicals do not accept this anti-democracy movement that has come out of the Trump loss. We're not backing down on having supported Trump. That's a different discussion. We're not going there, but we do support democracy. If you could do that, if you could have a meeting with these evangelical leaders and insist to them that A, you will hear them, you will not write them off, you will listen to their concerns. Second, that they bring up some valid points about the culture war where they have been discounted and where they have been, uh, they've been treated badly and, and marginalized but then say, in return, you need to say this was a fair election. Now, I'm not saying they would go for that, but if you made that public, and if you challenged them, you would have a shot at at least letting the broad majority of Americans know that you were, you were trying to heal a divided country, but there has to be give on the other side first, first about the truth of the election, and secondly, that we cannot any longer gloss over violence in the name of Second Amendment rights, bearing arms, all this stuff the evangelicals have gone with their whole God and guns program. That's the discussion we need to have. And then the third thing, again, going back to what I said first, there has to be the equivalent of a denazification program. We have to go up against people like Fox News and just say, look, this is intolerable. We can't have two sets of facts here. And we are going to actively move against you because you have, you have damaged this country through just an absolute torrent of lies. And that goes for social media too. You guys are going to be accountable here. We are going to change the laws. You will get sued by people that you say uh, cheated in the election or did all these things. We are going to rip off the Band-Aid of, of all kinds of coverage that you all have because of a traditional view of the press and these other things if you continue down this path and get really serious with these guys and compare them to the National Socialist Movement of the 1920s and 30s in Germany and just say, listen, we're calling you out on this. Those are the things that would have to happen if Biden wanted to have a serious reconciliation with all reasonable, thoughtful, fact-based Americans. And I still think, by the way, reasonable, fact-based Americans are the majority in this country. So let, let, let me ask you this, because there is some confusion in certain circles as to whether or not, and again, not the majority of the parishioners themselves, but the actual leaders of the evangelical Christian community in the United States that are interacting with the national Republican leadership. There is a sense that they are not operating in good faith. There is a sense that they are conscientiously operating in bad faith with the game here being not religion, but power, political and financial power. It, it, yet you describe something that is sounds to a lot of people like, well, if you can reason with them, if you can engage them in good faith, they might move. Do you really suspect there is an opportunity there to build bridges and alliances based on reason and good faith with the leaders of the evangelical community? None whatsoever. With their leaders, none. The reason you would address their leaders publicly and put them on the spot is to let their followers know how unreasonable and stupid these people are being and also just downright uh, hypocritical. I mean, look at a guy like Ted Cruz, who, uh, by the way, was a is a big fan of my father, Francis Schaeffer's writing, especially his book, A Christian Manifesto where my dad called for the overthrow of the US government if we couldn't get the abortion laws changed in favor of a pro-life agenda. That's back in, the 19, in 1983 or four that that book came out. The fact is, when you look at a guy like Ted Cruz, 
Ted Cruz is not a Christian. He is not a believer. He is a cynical manipulator of evangelical votes. And of course, Donald Trump was not even in the fold of somebody vaguely spiritual. He was just a, a, a malignant um, narcissist who, who, you know, one would take psychological evaluation to understand where he was coming from. Nothing to do even with spirituality. The fact is, guys like Franklin Graham, who have made himself into a multimillionaire with donations from people, Pat Robertson, who's now a billionaire based on a Christian TV show, Ralph Reed, who would have been in jail uh, in the Abramoff scandal with the, the casinos if, they, if evangelicals on the inside of the Justice Department had not intervened for him. All these folks, the family, this group that Jeff Charlotte exposed out of Washington of evangelical leaders snuggling up to Congress people and senators and grooming them uh, the Federalist Society, the leaders of that, Roman Catholic conservatives and evangelicals who have planted people in law schools and nurtured them for 30 years so they would be ready like Amy, Amy Coney Barrett was. You know, this movement is not led by good people. This movement is led by power-hungry, greedy people, and they are duping millions of decent Americans. And it, But if you're going to call anybody to sanity on this, you have to attack them and you have to go after them by name. That's my feeling. And they have to be called out on the hypocrisy of pretending they are people of faith. It goes way past how can you support Donald Trump when he's an adulterer and this and that and the other and paying off porn stars and locking kids in cages. That is nothing compared to the argument that can be made in terms of these folks quest for power and money over people and a long, long, long history of all kinds of con artists. I mean, just to take you know, one example, you, you, get, you get someone like Franklin Graham running a ministry um, and, you know, very basic questions, the same things, by the way, that are being asked by Russian dissidents about Vladimir Putin. You know, what's with all the toys, the airplanes, the villas, the, 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 the you know, the mountaintop retreats, the private planes. At a certain point, the movement itself, the evangelical movement itself, their leadership, all of them have to be called out as con artists, as flakes, as greedy people who have only pursued this because of a pursuit of power and influence. And that battle has not been joined because people are afraid to tell the truth, whether that's the New York Times or Democratic uh, candidates for office, because it looks like you're quote unquote attacking religion. But I would make the opposite argument as someone who was a fervent evangelical back in the day and still considers myself a spiritual person and so forth. And that is anyone who is a friend of evangelical Christianity at its best, as it was say in the 1960s or even the 1950s when Billy Graham was one of the first people to demand desegregated evangelistic rallies in the 1950s. This is before anybody's doing anything. If evangelical Christianity has any chance to get back to that, or Billy Graham, when I went to him with my dad and tried to get him to take a, quote, pro-life anti-abortion position and back our film series, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, which was formative in, in the beginning of the evangelical right-wing kind of push against abortion rights, and he said he was pro-choice, as Dr. Criswell did, who was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention at that time and pastor of First Baptist in Dallas and president of Dallas Theological Seminary. These were conservative evangelicals who were against segregation, who were pro-choice when the issue first came up. Or Ronald Reagan's type of conservatism, where he was a pro-choice governor of California and only changed his vote because my dad and other people pressured him into it on the basis of 
him being able to get evangelical votes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If we're going to get back to any of that, then the best friends evangelicals would have right now would be people in politics who would stand up and call them out by name and say, to, for instance, to Franklin Graham, in an age of violence and assassination and storming the Capitol building, how can you paint a target on the back of 10 Congress people for standing on principle on the impeachment issue? How dare you do this in the name of Christian service? You are, you are inciting violence and call them on it and say, we will lay this at your door if one hair from their head is armed. So Franklin, in that, in that spirit though, Franklin, and what you describe, because you understand internally how the movement thinks and what motivates a lot of these leaders in that movement, which as you say, you're, you're the, uh, as you yourself say, are acting in bad faith, are motivated by power and greed. Given the insurrectionist violent taint that it now has being associated with Trumpism, what are the pressure points that President Biden or the administration or Congress can use to actually modify their behavior in a real way besides rhetoric? Is it, is it taxing, eliminating the tax protections that the churches have, something that is unlikely to happen? What specifically will get them to change their tune? Well, one thing that will get them to change their tune, well, several things. One is the tax base. Look, the nonprofit 501c3 category for these monster megachurches is just ridiculous. They are vast, multi-million dollar corporate businesses. Their pastors are paid enormous amounts of money, and so are all the nepotistic sidekicks, wives, cousins, aunts, everybody else, like a Gilbert and Sullivan opera. You know, these folks are in it for the money and they rake it in because of that status. That would be one thing. Secondly, all these Christian organizations that are not churches, like Billy Graham's organization, Samaritan's Purse and so forth and so on, are fronts for political activism. And the laws need to be changed to make that very clear. So the tax base has to be attacked. The second thing that has to happen is there has to be truth in media legislation again, whether that's applying to Facebook, being open to suits from people who are damaged by the lies they publish, or whether it is being accountable in the same way that newspapers have to be accountable for what they publish. And that has to start going for Christian organizations. And the third thing that has to happen is that the, the whole idea of religious civil liberty being a kind of a coverall for any kind of misbehavior needs to be stripped away. And that has to start by going, going right at it. So for instance, when the, when the court rules with Republican judges that it's illegal to fire a teacher because he or she is gay if they work for an evangelical or Roman Catholic school, or it's legal for a company that is run by evangelicals or conservative Roman Catholics to strip contraceptive funding from their insurance for their employees, that has to be attacked frontally with legislation and all the rest of it. And the next thing that has to happen is that accountability has to be brought home to people. You know, if Trump can be impeached twice for inciting insurrection, then people who lead big Christian organizations that have enabled that and have covered for him also needs to be put in the crosshairs legally, both civil penalty as well as criminal justice system looking at them. They cannot just hide behind this religious civil liberty free speech combination, which they do all the time, and then play victim as if somehow these are corner churches in a, you know, storefront churches in, a, in, a, in an impoverished neighborhood. These are multi-million, even in some cases, multi-billion dollar organizations. And, and the lid needs to be stripped off and we start having to look inside and say, 
no more free pass. We are coming for you unless you stop playing this religious finance political game. Be politics or be religion. We're not letting you be both anymore. Franklin, quickly, um, when it comes to the actual vote itself, we saw in 2016, uh, according to exit polls, roughly 81% of white Christian evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in 2020. That number was still in the 77, 78% tell, perhaps a couple of points less than 2016, but still dramatic majorities, overwhelmingly the group. I- is there any hope that Democrats can get support from this cohort in 2024 and beyond, or, or is this truly a lost cause segment of the electorate? I would say when it comes to individuals, it's not a lost cause. When it comes to the group, it's a lost cause. And I'm going to be brutal here. This is not a group of people you can reason with any more than the apartheid regime in South Africa was. They have to be beaten at the election box, at the elect, in the electoral system, and at the ballot box. And they not only have to be beaten, the, the aspirations of people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley have to be crushed, not, not just beaten, crushed. Because the fact of the matter is, there's no compromise with people who right now, right now this minute, are still saying the election was stolen and that Trump is still president. You, there, there is not a sort of a middle ground on those types of issues. And I just go back to your previous question, and one other thing that would get people's attention is, is accreditation. The lifeblood of the whole evangelical machine, besides the churches and the parachurch organizations, runs on accrediting their schools. And that goes for the colleges like Gordon College that has gone far to the right and threw out its teachers who were, who were open to gay rights, for instance, and fired people, went to the court, wrote to Obama on this issue. It goes for the more elite schools like Wheaton College and then the thousands of smaller schools, the Christian high schools, and even the, the private academies that were started as whites-only academies back to fight segregation, integration at one point, and now open their doors because they can't get their accreditation otherwise. But you might call this the whole Betsy DeVos wing of private education, schools for profit, and so forth and so on. That has to be looked at. Why are we accrediting schools that will not teach evolution? How can you accredit a school that sends out an eighth grader believing that the earth was created in six days, that that liberal liberal, left-wing socialists, Jews, whomever, are the only people who believe in evolution, that Trump is still president and the election was stolen, that American history was glorious and wonderful, slavery was a small issue, race and non-entity. Enough is enough. You cannot have what amounts to accredited extremist madrasas in America that in Pakistan would be run by the the terrorist wings of of the Islamist terror movement. Why do we have their counterpart here in America and give them accreditation? Why do we have Catholic high schools that send busloads of kids wearing MAGA hats to rallies in Washington, doing it all on a 501c3 tax deductible basis, sending kids out into the world who have not been educated in science, in politics, in actual American history, world affairs, but literally have been fed from their mother's breast milk forward, a nationalist white mythology, which breeds not just Trump voters, but people who storm the Capitol thinking they're doing God's work. Enough is enough. So 
we have to look at the tax base. We have to look at the entire way that evangelical and conservative Roman Catholic and any other fundamentalist religious backed organization runs a school that educates another generation of people. So accreditation is a big is a big point, and we need to look at that. And once again, people need to start taking this on and say, okay, fine, you want to play hardball. You want to maintain Trump is still president. You want to educate generations of people who don't believe climate change is real and that we don't need any kind of green policy to save our planet. Good, but here's the price. You're not an accredited school anymore. You can't teach this crap and, and be accredited as a legitimate institution. We're not going to arrest you. We believe in free speech. Homeschool your kids if you want. But no one's getting a diploma that's going to get them into any accredited school. No one's getting a job after this, having gone to some place that teaches these things through grade school. And then you go to a Christian college that will fire gay people and trample their civil rights any more than we would accreditate a school now that had slaves working in the garden. And, and until we start seeing it in those stark terms, the evangelical movement will just continue to pass on their mythology and their bigotry and their bias and their anti-fact, anti-science to every next generation. There's a total overlap. Who in America doesn't believe that climate change is real? The evangelicals. Who believes Trump won the election? The evangelicals. Who doesn't believe that gay people should have rights? The evangelicals. Who would roll back women's rights in America, contraceptive coverage for insurance, abortion access, and all the rest of us? Evangelicals. It's all the same group. How do they do this generation after generation? Because they have an entirely hermetically sealed subculture, their own media that is never challenged, their own leaders who are never challenged on the basis of what they say they believe. And worst of all, all these accredited schools, you can pass through the whole system and never have to come up for air and deal with any facts at all. And in some parts of the country, you're not even in a town where other people with other points of view exist. We have to look at this and just say, this is insane. It's as if we let madrasas in America take hold all over the place, uh, in, inculcating people with a radical Wahhabist view of Islam that produced the 9-11 hijackers. And until we deal with it on that basis, we're never going to be able to get this out in the open and just say, what the hell is this all about? And how many more generations? Add in one more thing. These are the guns, God and guns folk. So these are the folks that have sat back and turned their homes into private militarized arsenals with thousands of rounds of ammunition, AR-15s, Kalashnikovs and all the rest, quote unquote, because their gun enthusiast is a hobby. At a certain point, people have to say, connect the dots. How are we ever gonna rein this group in of highly mobilized, organized folks with guns when their whole view of our culture is that we, that's every other American that doesn't toe the line on what they believe, is their sworn enemy to the death, where they talk about Second Amendment solutions and all the rest of it. So, you know, what I'm surprised at so far is that we've had less things like the storming of the Capitol. Not, the Capitol storming didn't surprise me at all. What surprises me is we haven't had more of this so far. There will be more. Think about all the state houses that have been surrounded by people from militias. Think about these huge conventions in Virginia where thousands of armed people turned up at the state capitol a couple of years ago when they were even talking about any gun control measures. The handwriting's on the wall. You cannot have a disgruntled, furious, misinformed, miseducated, angry population with no grip on reality that is armed to the teeth and ready to kill for what they believe when it's not even rooted in fact. And so there's no way to argue back 
because it's not like you can go to a chart and say, look, let me just show you how this really works. They're not buying any of it, not a, an argument here and there, any of it, how we were created, who we are, sexuality, all of it, climate. There's not one area where the evangelical community is in lockstep with anybody who has any sort of an education outside of their bubble. And that's a tremendously difficult thing for any culture. But when there's 60 million people like that and they vote for somebody like Trump and then he invites them to storm the Capitol to keep his presidency going when he's lost by millions of votes, if that's not a wake up call, then literally I don't know what is. I mean, when I saw those pictures of those militias surrounding Whitmer's uh, Capitol building in Michigan because she was calling for people to wear masks to protect other people, which would seem to be the basis of all Christian compassion. And they were ready to kidnap her and hang her in the forest. If that doesn't tell people, listen, we got to look at the anatomy of what makes these extremists possible, which is the broad support, not for their that particular action, but for violence in some form from an evangelical group of people, then uh, I have no idea what would wake you up. I mean, what would it take? Franklin, last question, and really a yes or no answer is what I'm looking for. Will we see over these next four years incidents like we saw on January 6th, which are violent efforts to undermine our American democracy and insurrectionist efforts with the fingerprints of the white evangelical Christian community over it? Yes, because the, there will be no incidents like that without those fingerprints. I say it again. It isn't that individual evangelical Christians are the ones doing this. It is the fact that with the broad support of the quote unquote respectable evangelicals like Franklin Graham, who do not stand up and honestly call out people like Fox News for their lies and use his power to turn the tide against this false information, there will always be that violent offshoot. And they may not personally be in the Franklin Graham organization. They may not be going to church every Sunday, but they would not exist without the climate created by the right wing evangelical movement. He's the author of the brand new book, Why I Am an Atheist Who Believes in God, How to Give Love, Create Beauty, and Find Peace. The great Franklin Schaefer joins us again, and we thank you for your participation on Strange Days. Always good, Fernand. Thank you. Boy, Franklin Schaefer, leave it to him to ring the bell and have it keep ringing in your mind. I got to tell you, he was right on the money in what he predicted would come to pass when it came to how we saw that community that he knows so well, the radicalized segment of the white evangelical Christian community. If we do not start to separate the good faith members of that community from those that are up to no good, it could be another long four years here in the United States. But folks, speaking of long, it's time to end this edition of the podcast because we've gone maybe a little over time. Hopefully you appreciated it as much as we appreciated you sticking around for it. And thank you to our guests, Franklin Schaefer and David Pogue. But my man Wayne is saying, Fernand, come on, bring it on down, break it on down, bring it in for a landing. It's time to say goodbye, at least 
for the week before we're back next week. I want to say thank you, of course, to the most important people that make our podcast go, go, go. It is, of course, you, you, you. You first-timers, welcome aboard. You long-timers, we love having you. And if you're trying to give us a second chance or two, well, hopefully we've enticed you enough to come back for more fun in the weeks and months ahead. Folks, it's time to say adios, but not before I always remind you to... Wake up! Get smart. And then... Just follow the money. Peace, love, freedom, and democracy. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Strange Days podcast. We'll see you next week. Adios, amigos. <laughs>